Chapter 4 Human Wickedness You can have no greater sign of a confirmed pride than when you think you are humble enough. William Law, A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life The examples given in the last chapter went to show that love may cause pain to its object, but only on the supposition that that object needs alteration to become fully lovable. Now, why do we men need so much alteration? The Christian answer, that we have used our free will to become very bad, is so well known that it hardly needs to be stated. But to bring this doctrine into real life in the minds of modern men, and even of modern Christians, is very hard. When the apostles preached, they could assume even in their pagan hearers a real consciousness of deserving the divine anger. The pagan mysteries existed to allay this consciousness, and the Epicurean philosophy claimed to deliver men from the fear of eternal punishment. It was against this background that the gospel appeared as good news. It brought news of possible healing to men who knew that they were mortally ill. But all this has changed. Christianity now has to preach the diagnosis, in itself very bad news, before it can win a hearing for the cure. There are two principal causes. One is the fact that for about a hundred years we have so concentrated on one of the virtues, kindness or mercy, that most of us do not feel anything except kindness to be really good or anything but cruelty to be really bad. Such lopsided ethical developments are not uncommon, and other ages too have had their pet virtues and curious insensibilities. And if one virtue must be cultivated at the expense of all the rest, none has a higher claim than mercy, for every Christian must reject with detestation that covert propaganda for cruelty which tries to drive mercy out of the world by calling it names such as humanitarianism and sentimentality. The real trouble is that kindness is a quality fatally easy to attribute to ourselves on quite inadequate grounds. Everyone feels benevolent if nothing happens to be annoying him at the moment. Thus a man easily comes to console himself for all his other vices by a conviction that his heart's in the right place and he wouldn't hurt a fly, though in fact he has never made even the slightest sacrifice for a fellow creature. We think we are kind when we are only happy. It is not so easy on the same grounds to imagine oneself temperate, chaste, or humble. The second cause is the effect of psychoanalysis on the public mind, and, in particular, the doctrine of repressions and inhibitions. Whatever these doctrines really mean, the impression they have actually left on most people is that the sense of shame is a dangerous and mischievous thing. We have labored to overcome that sense of shrinking, that desire to conceal, which either nature herself or the tradition of almost all mankind has attached to cowardice, unchastity, falsehood, and envy. We are told to get things out into the open, not for the sake of self-humiliation, but on the ground that these things are very natural and we need not be ashamed of them. But unless Christianity is wholly false, the perception of ourselves which we have in moments of shame must be the only true one. And even pagan society has usually recognized shamelessness as the nadir of the soul. In trying to extirpate shame, we have broken down one of the ramparts of the human spirit, madly exulting in the work as the Trojans exulted when they broke their walls and pulled the horse into Troy. I do not know that there is anything to be done but to set about the rebuilding as soon as we can. It is mad work to remove hypocrisy by removing the temptation to hypocrisy. The frankness of people sunk below shame is a very cheap frankness. A recovery of the old sense of sin is essential to Christianity. Christ takes it for granted that men are bad. Until we really feel this assumption of his to be true, though we are part of the world he came to save, we are not part of the audience to whom his words are addressed. We lack the first condition for understanding what he is talking about. And when men attempt to be Christians without this preliminary consciousness of sin, 
The result is almost bound to be a certain resentment against God as to one who is always making impossible demands and always inexplicably angry. Most of us have at times felt a secret sympathy with the dying farmer who replied to the vicar's dissertation on repentance by asking, What harm have I ever done him? There is the real rub. The worst we have done to God is to leave him alone. Why can't he return the compliment? Why not live and let live? What call has he, of all beings, to be angry? It's easy for him to be good. Now at the moment when a man feels real guilt, moments too rare in our lives, all these blasphemies vanish away. Much we may feel can be excused to human infirmities, but not this, this incredibly mean and ugly action which none of our friends would have done, which even such a thoroughgoing little rotter as X would have been ashamed of, which we would not for the world allow to be published. At such a moment we really do know that our character, as revealed in this action, is, and ought to be, hateful to all good men, and, if there are powers above man, to them. A god who did not regard this with unappeasable distaste would not be a good being. We cannot even wish for such a god. It is like wishing that every nose in the universe were abolished, that smell of hay or roses or the sea should never again delight any creature because our own breath happens to stink. When we merely say that we are bad, the wrath of God seems a barbarous doctrine. As soon as we perceive our badness, it appears inevitable, a mere corollary from God's goodness. To keep ever before us the insight derived from such a moment as I have been describing, to learn to detect the same real inexcusable corruption under more and more of its complex disguises is therefore indispensable to a real understanding of the Christian faith. This is not, of course, a new doctrine. I am attempting nothing very splendid in this chapter. I am merely trying to get my reader, and still more myself, over a pons asinorum, to take the first step out of fool's paradise and utter illusion. But the illusion has grown in modern times so strong that I must add a few considerations tending to make the reality less incredible. 1. We are deceived by looking on the outside of things. We suppose ourselves to be roughly not much worse than Y, whom all acknowledge for a decent sort of person, and certainly, though we should not claim it out loud, better than the abominable X. Even on the superficial level, we are probably deceived about this. Don't be too sure that your friends think you as good as Y. The very fact that you selected him for the comparison is suspicious. He is probably head and shoulders above you and your circle. But let us suppose that Y and yourself both appear not bad. How far Y's appearance is deceptive is between Y and God. His may not be deceptive. You know that yours is. Does this seem to you a mere trick, because I could say the same to Y and so to every man in turn? But that is just the point. Every man, not very holy or very arrogant, has to live up to the outward appearance of other men. He knows there is that within him which falls far below even his most careless public behavior, even his loosest talk. In an instant of time, while your friend hesitates for a word, what things pass through your mind? We have never told the whole truth. We may confess ugly facts, the meanest cowardice or the shabbiest and most prosaic impurity, but the tone is false. The very act of confessing, an infinitesimally hypocritical glance, a dash of humor, all this contrives to disassociate the facts from your very self. No one could guess how familiar and, in a sense, congenial to your soul these things were, how much of a peace with all the rest. Down there in the dreaming inner warmth they struck no such discordant note were not nearly so odd and detachable from the rest of you as they seem when they are turned into words. We imply, and often believe, that habitual vices are exceptional single acts and make the opposite mistake about our virtues, like the bad tennis player who calls his normal form his bad days and mistakes his rare successes for his normal. I do not think it is our fault that we cannot tell the real truth about ourselves. The persistent, lifelong, inner murmur of spite, jealousy, prurience, greed, and self-complacence simply will not go into words. 
but the important thing is that we should not mistake our inevitably limited utterances for a full account of the worst that is inside. 2. A reaction, in itself wholesome, is now going on against purely private or domestic conceptions of morality, a reawakening of the social conscience. We feel ourselves to be involved in an iniquitous social system and to share a corporate guilt. This is very true, but the enemy can exploit even truths to our deception. Beware lest you are making use of the idea of corporate guilt to distract your attention from those humdrum, old-fashioned guilts of your own, which have nothing to do with the system, and which can be dealt with without waiting for the millennium. For corporate guilt perhaps cannot be, and certainly is not, felt with the same force as personal guilt. For most of us, as we now are, this conception is a mere excuse for evading the real issue. When we have really learned to know our individual corruption, then indeed we can go on to think of the corporate guilt, and can hardly think of it too much, but we must learn to walk before we run. 3. We have a strange illusion that mere time cancels sin. I have heard others, and I have heard myself, recounting cruelties and falsehoods committed in boyhood as if they were no concern of the present speakers, and even with laughter. But mere time does nothing either to the fact or to the guilt of a sin. The guilt is washed out not by time, but by repentance and the blood of Christ. If we have repented these early sins, we should remember the price of our forgiveness and be humble. As for the fact of a sin, is it probable that anything cancels it? All times are eternally present to God. Is it not at least possible that along some one line of his multidimensional eternity, he sees you forever in the nursery pulling the wings off a fly, forever toadying, lying, and lusting as a schoolboy, forever in that moment of cowardice or insolence as a subaltern? It may be that salvation consists not in the cancelling of these eternal moments, but in the perfected humility that bears the shame forever, rejoicing in the occasion which it furnished to God's compassion, and glad that it should be common knowledge to the universe. Perhaps in that eternal moment, St. Peter, he will forgive me if I am wrong, forever denies his master. If so, it would indeed be true that the joys of heaven are for most of us in our present condition an acquired taste, and certain ways of life may render the taste impossible of acquisition. Perhaps the lost are those who dare not go to such a public place. Of course, I do not know that this is true, but I think the possibility is worth keeping in mind. 4. We must guard against the feeling that there is safety in numbers. It is natural to feel that if all men are as bad as the Christians say, then badness must be very excusable. If all the boys plow in the examination, surely the papers must have been too hard. And so the masters at that school feel till they learn that there are other schools where 90% of the boys passed on the same papers. Then they begin to suspect that the fault did not lie with the examiners. Again, many of us have had the experience of living in some local pocket of human society, some particular school, college, regiment, or profession, where the tone was bad. And inside that pocket, certain actions were regarded as merely normal, everyone does it, and certain others as impracticably virtuous and quixotic. But when we emerged from that bad society, we made the horrible discovery that in the outer world, our normal was the kind of thing that no decent person ever dreamed of doing, and our quixotic was taken for granted as the minimum standard of decency. What had seemed to us morbid and fantastic scruples so long as we were in the pocket now turned out to be the only moments of sanity we there enjoyed. It is wise to face the possibility that the whole human race, being a small thing in the universe, is, in fact, just such a local pocket of evil an isolated bad school or regiment inside which minimum decency passes for heroic virtue and utter corruption for pardonable imperfection. But is there any evidence, except Christian doctrine itself, that this is so? I am afraid there is. In the first place, there are those odd people among us who do not accept the local standard, who demonstrate the alarming truth that a quite different behavior is, in fact, possible. Worse still, there is the fact that these people, even when separated widely in space and time, have a suspicious knack of agreeing with one another in the main, 
almost as if they were in touch with some larger public opinion outside the pocket. What is common to Zarathustra, Jeremiah, Socrates, Gautama, Christ, and Marcus Aurelius is something pretty substantial. Thirdly, we find in ourselves even now a theoretical approval of this behavior which no one practices. Even inside the pocket, we do not say that justice, mercy, fortitude, and temperance are of no value, but only that the local custom is as just, brave, temperate, and merciful as can reasonably be expected. It begins to look as if the neglected school rules, even inside this bad school, were connected with some larger world, and that when the term ends, we might find ourselves facing the public opinion of that larger world. But the worst of all is this. We cannot help seeing that only the degree of virtue which we now regard as impracticable can possibly save our race from disaster even on this planet. The standard which seems to have come into the pocket from outside turns out to be terribly relevant to conditions inside the pocket. So relevant that a consistent practice of virtue by the human race, even for ten years, would fill the earth from pole to pole with peace, plenty, health, merriment, and heart's ease, and that nothing else will. It may be the custom down there to treat the regimental rules as a dead letter or a council of perfection, but even now, everyone who stops to think can see that when we meet the enemy, this neglect is going to cost every man of us his life. It is then that we shall envy the morbid person, the pedant or enthusiast, who really has taught his company to shoot and dig in and spare their water bottles. 5. The larger society to which I here contrast the human pocket may not exist according to some people, and at any rate we have no experience of it. We do not meet angels or unfallen races, but we can get some inkling of the truth even inside our own race. Different ages and cultures can be regarded as pockets in relation to one another. I said a few pages back that different ages excelled in different virtues. If then you are ever tempted to think that we modern Western Europeans cannot really be so very bad because we are, comparatively speaking, humane, if, in other words, you think God might be content with us on that ground, ask yourself whether you think God ought to have been content with the cruelty of cruel ages because they excelled in courage or chastity. You will see at once that this is an impossibility. From considering how the cruelty of our ancestors looks to us, you may get some inkling how our softness, worldliness, and timidity would have looked to them, and hence how both must look to God. 6. Perhaps my harping on the word kindness has already aroused a protest in some readers' minds. Are we not really an increasingly cruel age? Perhaps we are, but I think we have become so in the attempt to reduce all virtues to kindness, for Plato rightly taught that virtue is one. You cannot be kind unless you have all the other virtues. If, being cowardly, conceited, and slothful, you have never yet done a fellow creature great mischief, that is only because your neighbor's welfare has not yet happened to conflict with your safety, self-approval, or ease. Every vice leads to cruelty. Even a good emotion, pity, if not controlled by charity and justice, leads through anger to cruelty. Most atrocities are stimulated by accounts of the enemy's atrocities, and pity for the oppressed classes, when separated from the moral law as a whole, leads by a very natural process to the unremitting brutalities of a reign of terror. 7. Some modern theologians have, quite rightly, protested against an excessively moralistic interpretation of Christianity. The holiness of God is something more and other than moral perfection. His claim upon us is something more and other than the claim of moral duty. I do not deny it. But this conception, like that of corporate guilt, is very easily used as an evasion of the real issue. God may be more than moral goodness. He is not less. The road to the promised land runs past Sinai. The moral law may exist to be transcended, but there is no transcending it for those who have not first admitted its claims upon them, and then tried with all their strength to meet that claim, and fairly and squarely faced the fact of their failure. 8. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. James 1.13 Many schools of thought encourage us to shift the responsibility for our behavior from our own shoulders to some inherent necessity in the nature of human life, and thus, indirectly, to the Creator. 
Popular forms of this view are the evolutionary doctrine that what we call badness is an unavoidable legacy from our animal ancestors, or the idealistic doctrine that it is merely a result of our being finite. Now Christianity, if I have understood the Pauline epistles, does admit that perfect obedience to the moral law, which we find written in our hearts and perceive to be necessary even on the biological level, is not, in fact, possible to men. This would raise a real difficulty about our responsibility if perfect obedience had any practical relation at all to the lives of most of us. Some degree of obedience which you and I have failed to attain in the last 24 hours is certainly possible. The ultimate problem must not be used as one more means of evasion. Most of us are less urgently concerned with the Pauline question than with William Law's simple statement, If you will here stop and ask yourselves why you are not as pious as the primitive Christians were, your own heart will tell you that it is neither through ignorance nor inability, but purely because you never thoroughly intended it. This chapter will have been misunderstood if anyone describes it as a reinstatement of the doctrine of total depravity. I disbelieve that doctrine, partly on the logical ground that if our depravity were total, we should not know ourselves to be depraved, and partly because experience shows us much goodness in human nature. Nor am I commending universal gloom. The emotion of shame has been valued not as an emotion, but because of the insight to which it leads. I think that insight should be permanent in each man's mind. But whether the painful emotions that attend it should also be encouraged is a technical problem of spiritual direction on which, as a layman, I have little call to speak. My own idea, for what it is worth, is that all sadness which is not either arising from the repentance of a concrete sin and hastening towards concrete amendment or restitution, or else arising from pity and hastening to active assistance, is simply bad. And I think we all sin by needlessly disobeying the apostolic injunction to rejoice as much as by anything else. Humility, after the first shock, is a cheerful virtue. It is the high-minded unbeliever, desperately trying in the teeth of repeated disillusions to retain his faith in human nature, who is really sad. I have been aiming at an intellectual, not an emotional effect. I have been trying to make the reader believe that we actually are, at present, creatures whose character must be, in some respects, a horror to God, as it is, when we really see it, a horror to ourselves. This I believe to be a fact, and I notice that the holier a man is, the more fully he is aware of that fact. Perhaps you have imagined that this humility in the saints is a pious illusion at which God smiles. That is a most dangerous error. It is theoretically dangerous because it makes you identify a virtue, that is, a perfection, with an illusion, that is, an imperfection, which must be nonsense. It is practically dangerous because it encourages a man to mistake his first insights into his own corruption for the first beginnings of a halo round his own silly head. No, depend upon it, when the saints say that they, even they, are vile, they are recording truth with scientific accuracy. How did this state of affairs come about? In the next chapter, I shall give as much as I can understand of the Christian answer to that question.